0: Good morning. It is Monday, May 20th, 7.44 a.m. I hope you guys had a good week. I'm definitely enjoying and I'm grateful for my good health. Oh, my God. Being sick was no fun, and being healthy is. Go figure. (laughs) Um. So, yeah, it's been a lot of work, a lot of laundry and shopping and shipping. Did really good sourcing some beautiful items yesterday morning. And then I went and read tarot at Needles and Pens. And it was a very fruitful, you know... It was a good amount of people came in, and there were some good readings to be had. Um, Haven't really been going out much. Haven't really wanted to. Um, I went and saw Kim play at the stud on Friday. I met up with Irina and Rob and Joe were there, and it was really nice to see them all. Uh, I stayed for 2.5 hours. I had two Manhattans at one point, I stepped out to have a cigarette uh, with Joe. And when I came back in, homie tried to charge me $15. And I was like, no, 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 no. I explained that I already had a drink in there and I was not going to pay. And (laughs) it worked. And because it was true, you know, I wasn't trying to pull anything over on him. But I had already paid my dues. Um, I had I gotten there early. Arena had want me, wanted me to get there at 10 and so I did and turns out I was pretty much the only person in the bar at 10. So um, things didn't really get started till 11. So I think that hour of my time was worth at least $40. Um, so doing the math, you know, it's really hard to argue with that. Anywho, um, but yeah, I've really just been enjoying sewing, taking it easy, uh, I went to bed at 9 p.m. twice this week, so that for me was a huge goal, accomplishment, I've been sleeping like a baby, um, earlier in the week I went on a Tinder date, um, I don't think I'll be seeing them anymore. Um, We went to the 500 Club, and (laughs) there was this CrossFit guy there. Oh, my God. He was like a total CrossFit guy. It was not the guy I was on a date with. Um, The CrossFit guy had his pit bull girlfriend with him, and the pit bull was like sitting on the bar stool and, you know, I love animals, you know, don't get me wrong, but you know, the, the pit bull was sitting bare ass on a fucking bar stool and somebody got up to go to the restroom. And then that pit bull went over and sat on their seat, the unoccupied seat and just put their face in, in the face of, of, uh, one of the ladies that was sitting down and she was like frightened. She was visibly frightened and the CrossFit guy was acting like it was the most amusing thing in the world. It was hilarious uh, to him and it to him alone. And, and he was like, Oh, it looks like she likes you. Look, blah, 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 Ariana or whatever her name was. The dog's name was and the bartender was like, hey, you know, the bar stools are for humans. You know, could you put your dog on the on the ground, please? And the guy just kind of ignored him and just kept the dog up there. Meanwhile, I had ordered my Manhattan, and the bartender was went away to make it. And then this goober, this CrossFit goober, told me he was like. Oh, do you want me to order your drink for you? I was like, it's already been ordered and it's being made. I do not want your help. I left out the I don't want your help part, but I was like, it's, it's being made. Thank you. But he just wanted to, he wanted to just insinuate himself so much. And, and, you know, it was all about him, his one man called of personality and his girlfriend, the dog you know what, if you're going to bring your girlfriend to, to the bar like that, I'll bare ass, put some pants on your bitch. It was just too much. It was too much. Um, but I will, I will say this about it. It was the most amusing part of that evening. Um, and I live to tell the tale. I had lunch with Meryl at Mission Pie, one of my least favorite places in the world to eat. Um, but it was good to see Meryl, you know, we were going to go to Beloved, which is a, a hippie acai bowl cafe, which is right next door to where the old attic was on 24th. But it was packed with hippies and it would have taken us forever to get a seat. There's only like three seats in the restaurant, you know? So when there's 10 people in there, you know, you got to do the math. Uh, So we hot-footed it over to the Mission Bar, not the Mission Bar, (laughs) (laughs) Mission Pie, and um, I was so hungry, and I ordered the potato bacon soup, which I was, you know, potato soup should basically be like a loaded baked potato, but a little creamier in consistency, is what, what a potato soup should be like, unless you're doing a chowder, wherein... The potatoes are are cubed, okay. Um, what I got was the consistency of baby food. It had been pureed to filth, okay, because of the amount of starch in potatoes, and the more the more that you touch them, and the more that you pulverize them, especially at the heat, which kind of bruises the molecular structure of the potato, that causes it to kind of each little cell of the potato uh where the starch thing the sugar is to kind of become somewhat viscous so it has a kind of tacky wallpaper glue baby food situation and that's what the soup was um completely unflavored uh yes i know it's supposed to taste like potatoes but it also should have a little salt and pepper in it too um and some kind of herb, uh, you know, little chive would be nice. Maybe a little rosemary if you wanna get artisanal with it. A bit of cheese would have been nice. As for the bacon, uh, there were, I counted about three to four, three or four bits of wet bacon that might as well have been shoe leather. Um, when you add bacon or any kind of little meat to a to a soup for flavor, and you put it in like that. You're supposed to take it out because the bacon gets wet, and then it washes the flavor away. When you when you say that a, a soup has, it's a potato bacon soup. You crumble the bacon on top of the soup. Oh God! <laughs> uh, it was great to see Meryl, though. We had a a very good time, despite. Despite the strange food, and um, she had a, I think it was a. She managed to find quinoa there. It was a quinoa cumin situation, which wherein she also had to season it herself too. Um, so, that, so you know, salt. It's not such a bad thing if you use it in moderation. Um, so yeah, those were some interesting points in my life last week um went to go see Babylon the matinee with Anne. highly recommend it uh even if you're not a fan of reggae it's a great slice of uh London in the uh in 1980 um that's not all about white people in punk rock um it's about it's about reggae people it's about Jamaicans living in uh in the projects in the county estates, I guess, the housing projects in England and the struggles that they have. It's not a documentary, though. It's a drama that focuses on, you know, three or four main characters. Um, there's points when it's funny. And there's also points when you just are angry at, at the injustice and the vicissitudes they suffer. Great music, too. And it's... it's you know I love costumes, and there's no costumes per se in it, but the way that everybody dressed was was just on point. So everyone was was very well dressed and had beautiful hair. Highly recommended. Of a more pressing nature, I want to address. I want to talk to you guys more about abortion. I just I'm so incensed that that we're losing and we're you know, the time is is turning back and we're going to this bizarro dark ages and that the next generation may not have the same opportunities I have, the same freedoms. I'm very disturbed by it. Which led me to do a little bit of research on the woman who was essentially the figurehead for Roe versus Wade. Her given name was Norma Leah Nelson. She was born on September 22, 1947 in Simisport, Louisiana. She had a little bit of Cajun blood. And she was raised by Jehovah Witnesses, primarily her mother, Mary who ended up being a really, really violent alcoholic, a promiscuous alcoholic. Um, And she and Norma never got along. Uh, The first incident that got Norma on the wrong path, so to speak, happened at the age of 10. She and a friend stole money from a cash register at a gas station, and they convinced some people at the local hotel to give them a hotel room. The room service maid caught them kissing in the hotel room. They were having a lesbian experience in this room at a very young age. the act of the theft and also perceived, you know, what you know, it could have been just an innocent exploration landed norma in juvie okay um so at first she was sent to like a catholic boarding school and then later to um State Correctional School for various other sorts of um, petty crimes. By this time, Norma and her mother had uh, relocated to Gainesville, Texas. She really l- claimed to love the thrill of uh, being with other quote bad girls in in the um, in the juvie and she had a lot of lesbian experiences there and primarily identified as a lesbian. At age 14, she ran away from home and she started working as, a, as one of those, kind of like a car hop, the type the person that brings you your burger to your car. And lo and behold, Woody McCorvey was in, in his car and guess what he ordered? from her. He ordered, quote, a fur burger from Norma. Um, apparently, that was the thing that started it all and and made her flop over to the other side of straight life. Uh, they married when Norma was 15, and she may have seen Woody as, uh, you know, some sort of stability and an escape from from struggle. I mean, he had a car, you know. Um, she got married at age 15 and was pregnant by the time she was 16. And of course, Woody did not treat her well. He beat her. He was very violent with her. She left him, moved back in with her mother, got her own drinking problem and started being a lesbian again and identified as a lesbian. And she was doing a lot of drugs. She gave birth to, to her baby, a girl, she named Melissa, and her mother primarily cared for it while Norma was gallivanting around, okay? Her mother did admit to being completely repelled by Norma's lesbianism, but her main concern ironically, was the drugs and the drinking, especially the drugs. She basically did whatever she could get her hands on. She went on a weekend bender and came back. And her mom, basically, according to Norma, tricked her into signing away custody, like signing adoption papers to her mother for Melissa. Um, as the story unravels and unfolds, you will notice that Norma says a lot of things that ended up not being factual. Um, she claims that her mother tricked her into signing the papers. Her mother said that she willing, willingly signed the papers because she was not caring for Melissa at all and did not take her, take care of her at all. Um, she was then kicked out of the house and was just kind of floating around, being indigent, picking up odd jobs, cleaning houses. She got pregnant again and placed that baby up for adoption. Then what flip-flop back over to the lesbian side and be a lesbian for a while and then she'd go back again and where she got pregnant for the third time in 1969. Um, She heard that that Texas law was such that if you claimed rape you could get an abortion. So that's what she did. And she actually stuck to that story for a long time that she was gang-raped. Um. That never made it to the Roe v. Wade case that we know it as now. That was at the time too flimsy of a story for her to to elaborate on. There was no police evidence of her having been raped. There was no, she had not gone to the hospital. Nothing. There was basically she had not been raped. Um, so that was why she wasn't able to get the abortion initially. And also all the clinics had been shut down by authorities. So even if, if she had gone through the legal procedure and the checks, everything checked out for her having been raped, she wouldn't have been able to get one anyway. Um, she had, she was referred to an adoption attorney by the name of McCluskey. And he had, he himself was a homosexual, and he had been trying to take a stab at an anti-sodomy case for a client, um, revolving around male-on-male oral sex, where at the time it was illegal in Texas. He got some advice from Linda Coffey, who happened to be in a, a young, pretty much not much older than Norma herself. She was in her mid twenties and she and her, her law partner, Sarah Weddington, were trying to, to, uh, build a case for abortion, for abortion rights and its legality. Um, and so McCloskey referred McCorvey to Linda and Sarah as a good candidate for someone to advocate for. They needed a plaintiff, you know? So they met at a little Italian restaurant and and they, they uh, pretty much laid it down, um, what they were looking for. They needed somebody who could handle the press, uh, someone who could um, handle the backlash, should it go through. Uh, they were seeking um, they were seeking freedom to get abortions up to the third trimester. Norma herself was a was about five months pregnant. So it they were hoping that the case that this would be kind of an open and shut thing and that Norma could get her abortion. On Norma's end, she just wanted an abortion. She did not care about abortion rights. She, she was not uh, a socially aware person herself. Um, if anything, she was quite selfish and had already uh, caused a lot of, wreaked a lot of havoc in her personal life. And having a child was slowing her down. And she had already, you know, lost two children. Through one was taken from her by her mother, and the other one was given up for adoption and I think that she was probably pretty fatigued by the process. It definitely put a damper on her very active sex life when she was flip flopping from you know uh, gay to straight, essentially bisexual with a heavy heavily uh, leading towards lesbianism. It was later said by her her most long-term partner, Connie, that she was a phony, okay? Um, I'm going to jump in here and talk a little bit more about Norma's personality at the time, um, uh, some little character sketches here. Uh, she worked at a a lesbian bar, I believe it was called something like the White Carriage or not like the white horse but it was like the white coach or something like that her and she would bring a pair of levi's and a dress to work so if there was a a uh, a lesbian that she had her eye on uh, that was a butch she would change into the dress and if there was, you know, a cute butch, to quote her, that she had her eyes on. I mean, excuse me, if she uh, saw a feminine woman, sorry, if she saw a femme girl, then she would change into the Levi's. So it was a lot of, it was a very, there was a, she was a chameleon within her own lesbian lifestyle. Her own mother called her a diehard whore. All right. So, um, Now that could be parlayed into just being a sex positive person who likes to switch around and um, someone who is more gender fluid, uh, someone who is, you know, just exploring and being themselves. But she didn't have that support system. That's what happens when people don't get the support that they need. When people don't get the love that they need and they're not advocated for, things get distorted. And society turns them into liars. That's something we should keep in mind. The morality of, of legality and our changing ethos in what... What values we have now, how they're being supported, and the people in our community, how they're being supported. Norma, Norma needed support, and and she the closest thing she got to it was in the lesbian community, even though she flip flopped around a lot. That wasn't accepted back then. I think now it would have been more accepted if you wanted to, you know, be femme one day and then not be the next day. Um, So she was not necessarily confused, but I would say that she uh, was manipulative in some ways and a bit of an opportunist. Guess what? Norma ended up having the baby. She never had the abortion. She ended up getting, uh, giving it up for adoption immediately after the baby was born. There was a family uh, who's, to this day, anonymous, of course, who was ready to take the baby. Um, So, yeah, she was like six months pregnant Uh, by the time the case even started rolling, which was, you know, pretty much point of no return. Um, It took three years of trials before it reached the Supreme Court. So they started in honor at in 1969. And Normo never went to a single trial. She revealed herself to the press as Jane Rowe. And in 1970, she started seeing a, a woman named Connie Gonzalez. They were both from pretty hard scrap families. Um, Connie had a stronger family support network. And um, Connie provided a lot of stability for Norma. Okay, they had a, a quiet life and they started to kind of develop um, their home, kind of became like a safe haven for other lesbians. They had a developed a working class lesbians, uh, developed a, a sense of community in their small town. So, Things kind of settled into it. a, uh, after Roe versus Wade, things settled into a very quiet and stable, unassuming lifestyle. The, uh, let's see here, blah, blah, blah. She was working at a, an abortion clinic at the time. The clinic was called A Choice for Women. Okay, this was um this was her main stable means of support. It was probably the only abortion I believe it was the only abortion clinic for miles around. And she would counsel women, uh young women who were uh who needed the services of the clinic. Because there was not enough excitement in her life, uh she did claim that she and her girlfriend were shot at in their homes in 1989 kind of out of the blue. And she said that she that there were multiple shots fired and that they were telling her that she was a baby killer. Um, she went to the press with this and it turned out that it was false. No one shot at her and her girlfriend and um, it was just a, another spicy bit of drama. The more pressing drama was when Operation Rescue moved in next door to the abortion clinic. It was headed up by this guy named Flip Benham. All right. And he started working on her a little bit. Uh, she w- started getting a lot of attention from him. And I don't believe that they began an affair or anything like that. But she started getting validation from him that she didn't get when she was aligned with the pro-choice people. You know, this is in the 80s. So she's been aligned with pro-choice for a long time. She is essentially, you know, working a day-to-day job. The, the allegations about being shot at literally backfired in her face um, they ended up being untrue, which kind of took a chip at her credibility and Norma kind of resented coffee in, in Waddington, um, or Weddington, excuse me, not Waddington coffee and Weddington, the two lawyers. Uh, she felt like she was essentially a pawn in, in the case, um, she, and you know what, part of it had to do, I think, with the fact that she herself didn't really feel one way or the other about abortion rights as a whole for the rest of the people. She just wanted her abortion. So ultimately, um, she probably wasn't the perfect candidate for the, to, to um, bear the weight of, of such a cause that affected so many people, you know, when it comes down to brass tacks. Um, surely, you know, I think if they had held out a little longer, they could have met uh, someone more inclined to activism that was also pregnant, had an unwanted pregnancy. Um, that, that choice of, of having Norma M- M- McCorvey as, as the, their kind of poster child was, was to their detriment because she, because of her, her, uh, her need for validation, it, and her flip-flopping ways. And ironically, she flipped over to Flip Benham, who ended up baptizing her in, her, in his backyard in a swimming pool. Um, she was baptized on national TV, actually. And she started working next door with Operation Rescue. Can you believe it? Um, she was suddenly repelled by homosexuality. And she started saying Connie was her godmother or her cousin. Can you imagine having been with the same partner for over 20 years and then being introduced as their godmother? I mean, that's on top of everything. That is the frumpiest introduction ever. I'd rather be introduced as a cousin if I had to choose. Do not call me your godmother if I have, you know, been that intimate with you. That's gross. Um, it's kind of some Henry VIII shit, isn't it? What he did with Catherine of Aragon. Suddenly, their marriage was no longer valid. It's very Machiavellian as well. So, she... Starts. She throws herself head in to the into the pro life movement. She wrote an autobiography in 1994 called I Am Roe, um, and it's a seedy one. It's full of full of uh, lies and and things that were recanted. One, she accused her cousin of raping her for three weeks straight. Every single day when she stayed with them for a brief time, there's a weird thing there's a weird um she has a pattern of of certain lies that she likes to use. She likes to use cousins in rape as as two lies She likes to it's pretty interesting I don't have time to analyze it now, but isn't it interesting that she started calling her her longtime girlfriend her cousin? It's food for thought, but too much to chew on at this exact moment. Uh, in 1998, in she came out with another book called One by Love. At this, at this time, by the way, uh, she and Connie were still living together, but their relationship had, of course, by default turned platonic. So she really just shut down Connie's love life. As well, and I'm not talking about lesbian bed death. I'm talking about she had the upper hand, and she decided that she was no longer a lesbian, but she didn't really have a place to go. They were they were making their money through uh, speaking appearances. She was she was getting a thousand dollars here, two hundred here. She got a stipend from Flip Benham. In 2004, she tried to make a Supreme Court case to overturn Roe versus Wade. The case was dismissed in 2005. Okay. There things were were constantly just changing around her. Um what else do we have here she ended up she basically ended up converting to Catholicism and digging deeper into that and that was her conversion to Catholicism was probably the most sincere choice that she had made in her life that was the thing that she did for herself that was completely unattached to Um, an ideology or being on anyone's side. Her choice for Catholicism, even though I don't agree with it, was I believe the one thing that she made for herself. Even though she of course, did get on the Catholic pro-life bandwagon. She was already on that bandwagon and that did not affect her choice to become a Catholic. She was actually born a Catholic. Uh, in a small country parish when she was in Louisiana before her mother converted to Jehovah Witness. At that point, Flip Benham had given up on Norma as well. And he was quoted as saying that she just basically just fishes for money. Well, towards the end of her life, Norma didn't really catch any big fish in the money department and was basically an itinerant, floating spokeswoman flip flopper you know scuttlebutt you know spreader um and she ended up dying in a in an assisted living facility when she was 69 years old and she basically died of a heart attack i feel that 69 is too young to to die and and uh, she had a she had a difficult she had a difficult struggle. She was born into some very um you know unsavory circumstances in some ways she was a product of her environment she was also not nurtured in in herself and she only had acceptance through through the external did anyone really know the real norma? Will we ever know the real Norma? Does it matter? I am, however, grateful to her for her contribution and, and the lives of the pregnant women that she saved by being the figurehead and by being the, the plaintiff that was needed in that moment. Her life could have been different if she herself had been able to get an abortion. I really believe that. She may not have been trapped in an abusive marriage. She she may not have had to go through the agony of having her child that she couldn't care for being taken away from her by her own mother. Who also did not raise her well and 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 who abused norma when when norma was little to bring another child into the world basically to 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 be part of generational abuse that's very disheartening carrying a child to full term there's so many there's so many children languishing away in the foster system children who are have been born who are unwanted as people forget the fetus there are people who are unwanted and there is no support for them We have a lot to think about this week. I hope you guys have a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much. Week and then weekend. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. Bye-bye.